coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming turning point moment. <clears throat> yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. It all started with a simple thought coming out of 2 Chronicles 8, verse 1. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. That was the thought. And you're like, well, that's not even a complete sentence. That's not even a full thing. No, it's not. But it's what got my mind thinking. Oftentimes, uh, if, if you've been a Christian or you're... You, you know, you've been around church for any number of years, and then you find yourself in this interesting situation where you're, you're trying to figure out, you know, what to do with your life. You know, and I, sometimes I think it gets harder for Christians to figure out what we're supposed to do with our lives, especially as young adults, because we put so much onus on, I just want to do the right thing. I just want to do what God has for me. And we get so freaked out about screwing it up. Right? You're like, oh, I'm going to screw it all up. No, well, no, you're not. How do I know that? Because if you're walking with Jesus, then he's never going to let you get that too far. Now, if you're blatantly running the wrong other way, you know, maybe you will screw it up. But the good news is, even if you do screw it up, Jesus is there with you in every moment, and he's making all things work together for our good, for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. And so he's, he's working consistently, spitting and working and changing and transforming every moment of your life. I just, I don't know, I, this is in my thoughts today, but I just need to let somebody know in the room that you are not a screw-up. No, you're not a screw-up. You might be thinking that way, but you're, you're, not, you're not a screw-up. <laughs> okay, let's go home. That was... <laughs> God spoke. Let's go to Swiss Chalet. Um, <laughs> go back to the original dipping sauce. Okay, anyways, they changed. So... For, the la- for about six, five, six weeks here, we're looking at this, this idea of dreams, and we're really concentrating on, on one half of this statement in, in the fact that, that Solomon had built his own house. Dreams is about our work. It's about our dreams, our visions, our ideas, our craft. It doesn't necessarily mean our vocation. Sometimes we mix up our vocation with our gift or our grace, and, and we, we think or we insist that sometimes we have to get paid for our gift or our grace, and that's not true either. Last week we looked at this idea and we said, is my gift, like am I a slave to my gift? Is it driving me? Is it defining my life? Am I a slave to my gift? This week we're going to look at something from a little bit different angle, but we're looking at how do I build my own life? How do we build our own house? In our next series we're going to look at how do we build the house of the Lord because I believe just like Solomon in that verse in 2 Chronicles 8 verse 1, they look at a retrospective of his life, a period of time over 20 years, and he was known for doing two things, not just one thing. He was known for building the house of the Lord and building his own house. I believe the best plan for your life, the, the, the best plan that God has for you is not that you would just focus on building your life and your legacy and your success and, and your net worth, but, and not that you would only focus on building the house of the Lord, even though you can't believe a pastor saying that. But I'll say it once, and, I've, I've, and I'll say it again. I believe there's many of us, in, in the name of doing something good and doing something great, have sacrificed something for God that he did not ask us to sacrifice. So... If we're going to live our lives in, in this godly template, that means we got to learn to live a life that both builds the house of the Lord and builds our own lives at the same time. They're intermingled. They're interwoven. They cannot be separated. We get in trouble when we start 
separating it out and putting it, okay, this is my, this is me, this is this. Because what happens, oh, this is my work life. This is my church life. This is my family life. We start breaking it out in boxes, and, and you're like, you know, there's that movie out, Split. I haven't seen it, and I probably won't because I get terrified easily. Um, <laughs> like split personalities. The truth is a lot of us are walking around with split personalities. Right? We're walking around because we've got, we've got church person, family person, friends person, work person, professional person, unprofessional at work person. <laughs> so which one of you showed up today? When I wake up in the morning, which one am I, am I wrestling with? Which one am I allowing God in to work on? What if we just wrapped him up into one person? You know, there's that idea, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, let your personality be one. Why don't you be the one person God created you to be? That's what I desire. I desire to be the one person that God created to me, me to be. And then if I do that and if I follow him and we're walking together, wow, I'm going to look back over 20 years and people are going to say, man, that person built the house of the Lord and his own life. And he did it at the same time and he did it the right way. So if only there was a pattern or a template for us to follow. Genesis 2.15, if we roll it all the way back to the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. He looked back. He stood back. He cracked open a seven up, which he just created. He says, ah, that looks good. He took a break on the seventh day. He created man. He said, not good for man to be alone. <laughs> Creates woman. And then he sends man to the office. <laughs> then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. God sent us to work. Sometimes we think that work is a distraction. It's something that gets in the way. It's something that we just have to do. That like it's oh work. Work existed in paradise. It wasn't if we think, oh well that that must have been after sin happened, after you know, Eve forced Adam into eating the passion fruit. Clearly always a woman's fault. <laughs> it wasn't. He was his fault and her fault. Together joint fault and they both ate of the same fruit. We thought, oh, work happens after that. No, work doesn't happen after that. Work was a part of God's plan for you, your responsibility. He gave you gifts, graces, uh, abilities, talents, all these things. He gave you like these, these great tools. <laughs> he said, now I want you to do something with it. When he made the world, he created the world. He created something that was perfect and complete, but he created something that was perfect and complete, full of untapped potential. He said, okay, I want you to go and I want you to work this thing. In Genesis 128, I want you to fill it and I want you to subdue it. I want you to have dominion over it. That idea of subduing is build something beautiful out of this incredible thing that I've given you. And when we look at our own lives, I like to think of it a little tiny earth that God gave me. Something that's perfect and it's complete and it's my life. And he says, make something beautiful out this, but it's full of untapped potential. You've got to develop it. You've got to pull that stuff out of it, and God's going to help you lead you on this journey. That's why our life is a journey. It's not a set of destination points. We like to think, you know, that's why, like, even our education system has set us up to think that our whole life is based on, on, de on destination because, okay, we go to school, we, we check in, we go to kindergarten, we check out, great, take a summer off because let me tell you, kindergarten was hard, you know, take number of months off, get into grade one, okay, everything's about checking in at the next destination. You go through 12, I guess 13 with kindergarten, you go through all those years and your whole life is about just making it to the next level, doing the next thing. But life was never about levels. 
It's not Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> it is about a journey when it's an, about an unraveling where you're discovering who you are, you're discovering who Jesus is, and you're discovering how you can build your life together with him. Creation is all tied together in Colossians. This is all just, this is just repeat for everyone who's been here. Uh, Colossians 1 ties together the creation account because we find out that it wasn't just God that was at creation. The Holy Spirit was brooding. We know that. But Jesus, God did everything through Jesus. How do we build our lives? We build our lives with Jesus. If you're ready, just go to the next chapter here. Just say, I'm ready. Okay, we're mediocrely ready today. Anyone like to go to chapters? Anyone go to chapters ever? Okay, bookstore people here. Yes, bookstores still exist. I know they're closing at a rapid rate, and now they sell more knickknacks than they do books, but they're, I love going to chapters just like walking around reading random titles of things because it's like I do judge every book by its cover, and I'm like, that looks terrible, <laughs> written by Stephen Hawking. It's like, okay. Um, you got it, and it took you a second, but you got it. Uh, like, I love just, just walking through, and, and I wonder, uh, wonder what would happen if we walked in and we say, I want to find a book, you know, maybe a title called, like, The People God Used to Change the World. And if I went and I found that book, and if I took it off the shelf, um, it would probably look like this. But if, if it wasn't that, uh, and I took it off, I, I wonder what I would find. I would assume that I would maybe find, like, a book full of, like, preachers missionaries, I don't know, what do you think, politicians, uh, maybe not, just kidding, I love politicians, literally, anyways, popes, evangelists, who's in that book, give me some, who, who would be in the book of people that change the world, who, who would you expect to find, anybody, Wayne Gretzky, <laughs> Connor McDavid, okay, great, <laughs> okay, this is very Edmonton specific, <laughs> I got, I got, <laughs> Matt Dodd, I can't say that out loud. Matt Dodd's flashing a message on the screen that says, Hitler, yeah, he did change the world in, in a negative way. Donald Trump, Mother Teresa, people are changing the world all the time. Like, and, and we look at and we set these people on these super high levels, but then we go in the Bible and we go, there's this like heroes chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. It's like got all the most famous people in the Bible of all time, and it's all by faith they did this, and by faith they did this, by faith they did this. And if you look at it, you might assume that maybe they're, they're, they're spiritual gurus or leaders or, or, or pastors or speakers, but, but they're not. They're farmers, shipbuilders, really big ark builders, nomadic tribesmen. Convicted criminals who become governors. A prostitute. That's the list. And there's more in Hebrews chapter 11. This is what Bishop Dick Lucas says. I think being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study group in many ways is easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. And, and what we should be doing each day is easier to discern, to discern. More black and white, not so gray. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men and women in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, in the arts. This is the greatest shortfall today. That we don't see ourselves 
as people that God wants to use. That we don't see our work as something that's strategic, that's a gift that's been given to us. That we don't see our craft as something that God's given to us. Our, our gift, our, our talents, our abilities, everything, our ability to make money, to make success, our ability to make and build things, those are all gifts that God has given us. And the highest purpose of any of these things is to bring glory to God. That's the highest purpose of any of them. The highest purpose is to bring glory. I thought it was evangelism. No, actually, the highest purpose of any of these things is to bring glory to God. So whatever you do, you, when you, work, you go to work, you work unto the Lord. Next week, we're going to really break down what it means. Like, that's a vague verse, to, pray, to work unto the Lord. And depending on what camp or what segment of Christianity or not Christianity you come from, the way we, we understand what we do when we go to work and work with purpose is completely different. We're going to look at that next week. But this week, I need you to understand. I'm hoping I can convey passionately that God created you for a purpose. You have not screwed it up. You're in the midst of destiny, that God wants to use you exactly where you are, that your, your place has a purpose, that your abilities and your talents, it's not a mistake. It's not just who you are. You've been hardwired to bring glory to God through that very thing that he's placed in your heart and that he's placed in your hands. We've already looked at this idea that it was, it was the Greeks that told us that anyone that, that, went, that had to go to work or, or did any kind of job uh, that was looking like work or physical labor, was the, that was the thinking that led us to where we are today, where we put values and cast and even dollar values on specific jobs. That's not how God sees you. God is not a Greek. That thinking is carried through the generations where we think that only the highest and the most elite in society, that if they don't work and they just can contemplate the things of life, that, that they are somehow above anyone else works so that they could have their existence, and that's just not true. Your work, your gift, your talent, your ability, your job, your lack of job, the job that you're about to get, whatever it is, this place that you're in right now, God has a plan and a purpose for you right here, right now. You say, well, my life doesn't make sense right now. In the midst of chaos, God's about to bring order. We're so upset about the chaos, and God says, just watch me work. Give me some space. Give me some. I'm so mad, God, that I'm just in this mess. Okay, well, let me clean it up then. No, I want to sit in the mess. I want to just feel bad for a minute. He says, well, let me help you feel good. No, I want to feel bad because I like to feel bad. Humans are pre-wired for negativity. So instead of embracing the chaos and saying, God's about to bring my chaos into order, because that is our origin story, when there was nothing, 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 nothing ever, God was there, the Holy Spirit was brooding, and he brought, this is what creation was, he brought chaos into order. So what if your origin story right here, right now, the, the moment where you pivot to somebody who's just existing or to the, the moment that you now pivot into somebody who is existing with a purpose, who's living, not just surviving, but you're thriving, knowing that God's about and is and is in the midst of turning your chaos into order. I want to do a quick overview. Sometimes we get right into Bible verses and we're like, it's only the word of God that's whatever. And that's great. But sometimes we can learn just as much from the overview. And I want to look at three specific books of the Bible. I'm going to teach you all three of them right here, right now. It's going to be amazing. I will never make it through. But there's this section of books. The first is this guy named Ezra. These three books in the Bible 
describe how God restores the nation of Israel back to its homeland. God uses different people, different characters to, to accomplish that one purpose. First, there's this book in the Bible called Ezra. The book of Ezra was written by a guy who's a minister, kind of like me. He's a, he's a teacher of the word. But God had a specific purpose for him, and he needed Ezra. He needed the people to be acquainted with the Bible so that their lives could be shaped by what God said. So God raised up a guy in Ezra, and you're like, well, that's, that's awesome. And he, like, preached to a lot of people. And literally when Ezra got up to speak, they would, he would open up the Bible, and he would just start reading Bible verses, and people would just start weeping. They would just start weeping and crying because they're like, I've never heard this before. I've never understood this before. There was, there was such a separation that being a preacher or speaker or a teacher wasn't a cool thing. In fact, it was the absolute opposite. They didn't even know what the function was, and yet God said, Ezra, I need you to do this against all odds. I need you to reacquaint my people with what I have written for them so that they can come alive. And so he brings this guy named Ezra who speaks and teaches And the people are like, oh my goodness, this is what I've been missing. There's another character in this exact same narrative, a guy named Nehemiah. Just turn to somebody and say, Nehemiah. Nehemiah was was like a cupbearer for the king. He would like test everything, you know. So basically life or death every day. It's like, here, Seb, taste this. We'll see if you survive, you know. If they're trying to kill me, you might as well die first. Like, that was literally his job every day. But beneath the surface, Nehemiah was an urban planner. Like, that sounds boring. Yeah, he was an urban planner. I think urban planning is amazing. But that's what he was. He was a developer and urban planner. And so God speaks to Nehemiah to the point where he's standing beside the king. Like, you don't get much more powerful than being the guy who literally stands beside the king every single day and decides whether he lives or dies by a sip. Like, there is some kind of, uh, like, bond in that connection where you stand and he's literally got the ear of the king. Yeah, you're going to live today. Okay, awesome, thanks. There's a deep trust that goes there. So he goes from one of the most powerful positions Yes, it was a servant position, but one of the most powerful positions in the country says, listen, i got to leave here. i got to get out of the throne room. I need to rebuild Jerusalem. God's got a plan. He's got a purpose for me. And the king, because Nehemiah understood the power of his place and his position, God says, I'm going to use you exactly where you are. He turns, talks to the king. The king says, here, take whatever you want. Take whatever you need. Go rebuild your thing. They rebuilt an entire city led by this urban planner, and developer so that the people of God would have somewhere to go. God used his management skills to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. He used his urban planning ability to to network the people back together. The third one is Esther. Anyone familiar with Esther? Any Esther fans in the house? Yeah, Esther is a unique story. Esther wasn't like an urban planner. She wasn't like a preacher. She was a contestant on The Bachelorette or The Bachelor. Like if we were to pull it into modern day, she was literally like on a reality show star. The king was married to a woman named Vashti. She didn't come when he called her. The king got really mad, and they decided we're just going to do like a contest here, reality TV. Uh, We're just going to do a contest um, to to see who could be the queen. We're just going to replace the queen. And so they do this entire, like, beauty contest and this whole, like, amazing thing. And, and Esther kind of, like, 
comes out of this thing and she's like emerging like a front runner. Now, this is kind of an incredible process. And, and again, if this was on TV, this would be a whole year's where this process was one year long. So they would find all these girls. They brought them to the palace. They lived in like their own residence. Sound familiar? They live in a house together. For six months, they get skin and beauty treatments, oils, myrrh, some for their hair. For the next six months, they kind of eat well because they were kind of impoverished. So they, they ate well, and, and I'm assuming they, like, did Pilates every day. I don't know, like, what they did. I'm assuming there's some fighting, there's some drama. What the Bible actually tells us is that Esther found favor in, like, the host of The Bachelor. And so he would just make sure that she got the best stuff and the best clothes and the best myrrhs and oils and whatever things, spices that she put on. And uh, God used this reality TV show contestant for something incredible. For those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Esther was a Jew. She didn't tell anybody that she was a Jew. But one of the king's other advisors decided that he had a great plan, and that was to kill all the Jews. And that's kind of a problem when you're a Jew living in the king's palace. And so Esther is obviously, like, upset. She's obviously a little rattled. She meets with her uncle as an advisor, and I'm assuming this would be like a heart-to-heart interview in, like, a nice place if this was on TV. And he said, listen, Esther, um, you know, maybe, like, You've come, maybe you've just come to your place in in the palace for such a time as this. Maybe the whole idea, the whole plan, maybe all of this was like just for this moment. Now that's actually a bad translation because it's come as kind of a passive word. The best kind of translation for it is that you've been brought to the palace for such a time as this. This is your time. This is your moment. You got to use your position. You got to use your influence. You got to go before the king. There was just one small problem for Esther. You weren't allowed to go before the king unless he called for you. And if you showed up before the king and he didn't want to see you, he would just have you executed. So Esther's like, okay, so it's really cool that I'm here and I can make a difference. Like, I want to make a difference with my beauty. I want to change, like, you know, if this was like Miss America, she'd be like, well, I'm, I want world peace. It's like, okay, put your money where your mouth is, Esther. She's like, okay, but this is literally like, am I going to die here kind of moment? And, <laughs> yeah, Esther has this realization, this is my time. So she says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Everybody fast and pray for it. They just stopped eating. They started praying. God starts working this courage and this boldness inside of her. And incredibly, she comes to terms with this plan. (laughs) She comes to terms, okay, this is my time. I need to use my influence. Now, luckily, what's going for her is that the Bible tells us that the king loved her more than anyone else in the bachelor competition. She was the chosen one. She was the favorite. She's the one all the panels and the magazines were picking to win. So if anyone had that shot, God used her beauty. You've been brought for such a time as this. I think you and I have a lot more in common with Esther than we would like or that we would, you know, be able to come to terms with. Here's what I mean by that. For many of us, we're already living in the palace. 
I look across, you know, the group of people in this room, and, and I see people with degrees, with diplomas, with designations, with masters, with doctorates. I see people in incredible positions. I also look across this room, and I realize that even those of us who are unemployed or those of us who are making not very much money are making more than, like, 90% of people in the world. I look at us and I look at all of us and I look inside myself and I understand that I'm living in the palace. That God has brought me here for such a time as this. That I might not be the most beautiful of the bunch, but God has given me something and he's brought me for this time right now that I could make a difference, that I could do something, that in this place, that in this moment, that I have been called to make a difference. It's not just about my competency. It's about what I'm going to do with it. I've been brought to the palace. You've been brought to the palace. So what are you going to do with your position? Here's, here's the question for this week. Just like last week we asked, you know, is my gift my master? The question is, does the palace own you? Does the palace own you? You know, maybe you're uh, a bureaucrat. You, you know, you work in these upper levels and people are trying to get something done. They're trying to get a deal made. There's a resolution trying to be made. And there's all these backdoor promises being made. There, there's cash. There's investments. There's promises to positions of power. All you have to do is leverage your influence. question is, what am I going to do? Maybe it's as simple as you're on a job site and you're invoicing the client on behalf of your company, and your foreman comes over and he says, why don't you tack eight more hours onto the invoice? They don't know. They won't know that we left at 9 a.m., even though we showed up at 8.15. Just tack on a full day's work. We might as well get paid for it. What am I going to do? Maybe you're a basketball coach, a high school basketball coach, and you've got a student that you know isn't eligible because they're academic, but they're your star player, and you need them, and you're about to three-peat. What do you do? Do you fudge the report? Do you help doctor their grades? Do you let them play anyway and hope that nobody finds out? You've been brought to the palace for such a time as this. Now, what am I going to do? One of the greatest things that I could do to bring glory to God is to live my life in a way that will actually bring glory to Him, which means every decision matters. Of course, you're going to sit that player. Of course, you're not going to invoice the next eight hours. And if you're a bureaucrat, you're not going to accept the bribe, and you're not going to turn your head when somebody else is accepting it. You're going to live a life that says, even though it costs me something, it's worth it because God has called me here. And by me making a stand, by me standing on this moral ground, I am standing as a beacon of hope that says, I'm not owned, I'm not bought by this palace, but I'm here to work on the inside for its transformation. In Esther uh, 4.14, Oh, there we go. It's showing up on the screen. In Esther 4.14, she comes to this 
realization, sorry, 4 verse 16. She says this, go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I in my attendance will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. When I go to work and I'm forced to make a moral decision, I'm forced to make a decision that's going to cost me something. You will quickly know whether the palace owns you or not by the ease at which that decision comes. You say, well, this is the least spiritual message I've ever heard you speak. This is talking about morality. Yeah, but Jesus is transforming our life. He's renewing our mind. He's changing the way we think. He's changing the way we process. He's changing the way we do business. He's changing the way we interact with people. There's one thing that's, that's more valuable than anything else in this world, and that's your integrity. You can't let your integrity be compromised because when you let your integrity be compromised, you begin to let that light that's burning inside of you start to flicker because when people look at you, they go, yeah, he says he's a Christian, he believes in God and all these kinds of things, but his actions, I know his actions, and they do not add up. The math does not add up. This is what Dr. Timothy Keller says. And so you have the freedom to serve the world through your influence just as you can through your competence. There's two spheres to your work life. And I need to make this asterisk. We're not just talking about going to work. We're also talking about your gifts, your talents, your abilities. You may be a stay-at-home mom. I believe being a stay-at-home mom is the hardest job in the world. And the pay is for sure the least. (laughs) Like, for sure. <laughs> like, if, if you wrote that thing down on a job description, nobody's taking it. <laughs> I'm talking about you, too. I'm talking about every single person who doesn't just have a competency, but somebody who has influence. You may not have influence in an office. You may not have influence over a company. You may not have influence over a whole slew of workers. You may not be in the room for a backroom deal. You may not be a coach. You may not be any of those things, but you know who you have influence over? Your friends, your family, your kids, your kids, your legacy. Your competency has brought you to where you are. Now what are you going to do with the influence that comes along with that competency? Sometimes we take this idea as a bit of an insult. The idea that we've been brought here. Because being brought to this place, just being brought to where you are right now has this, this, this implication that it wasn't just your hard work that got you here. Listen, I worked hard for this job. I worked hard for this promotion. I worked hard to get me to this place. I worked hard developing this skill. I worked hard. You worked really hard at using the thing that God gave you. So when you come into this place, when you come into this influence, when you come into this office, when you have arrived, yes, you worked hard to develop it, but God got you there because he gave you all the tools. So when, if God's the person that put you in the chair question is, who am I working for? The guy who put me here? 
or am I willing to do anything I can of my own power to stay here? Who owns me? Am I doing this for the glory of God? Am I using my influence to extend his mercy, his grace, his truth? Or am I using it to just hold on to the power that I have, the influence that I have? Am I using it just to leverage it for my own gain? You've been brought to this place, to this office, to this seat for such a time as this. This is your opportunity. You've been listening to The Engage Life, powered by Engage City Church. If you like what you heard, check out engagechurch.ca.